Hey folks, this is Rabbi David Foreman. I'm back here with Emmanuel Shalev. This is going to be the last episode which we're going to be talking about Mara if things go well. And then we're going to move on to one of the, the next stories in the Torah, the story of the Mun. Right? Is that what we're doing next? What are we doing next, Emu? It's what we're doing next because we're, we're going to deal ah. with Sphira next. We've dragged you along on this journey. We promised you coronavirus antidotes, Sfirat HaOmer answers, and I promise you it will come together. Thanks for sticking with us. But uh, yeah, here we put the cap on Rafainu and we move on to Sphira and show you how everything we've been doing actually does relate quite a lot. So in order Sphira. to do that, we kind of do have to put the cap on Rafainu, and therefore we want to address this one last kind of nagging question, which we've been talking about. What is this mysterious tree that gets hurled into the water? What's that all about? So, Emu, I came across something uh, that I want to share with you. It, I think, is pretty intriguing. It begins with a fascinating wordplay. The word I'm thinking of is actually the word that the king of Mitzrayim was battling against. You're on the couch. You're Pharaoh. You're struggling to tell your psychiatrist what it is that you hate, what is it that you fear about all these Israelites. And remember, Pharaoh didn't begin by hating us. Pharaoh began by fearing us. What did Pharaoh fear? Mm -hmm. He feared their population explosion. Vayafru, vayirbu, vayatzmu. Vayatzmu. Right? Vayatzmu is the culmination. It's three verbs, right? Vayifru, vayirbu, vayatzmu. Right? They had children, Vayirbu, and there were many, Vayatzmu, and they became mighty. And Pharaoh fears that, right? Because what does he tell his populace? Hain am b'nei Israel, the people of Israel, Rav the Atsum Mimenu. They are too mighty for us. It was that fear of Israel that caused Pharaoh to act. They're most afraid of is, is a war. They're afraid that they're going to join their enemies and fight them. And in a war, the most important issue is how strong are they? How many are they? And so so these population numbers translate into might. That's what scares Pharaoh. So spell Vayatzmu, right in the middle of it, you see that eights, Ayin Sadiq, right? So there's eights, tree, and what's on the other sides of tree? Yud on the one hand, Mem on the other hand, a tree in a veritable sea, a tree in a veritable ocean, a tree in a veritable endless expanse of water. That is what Vayatzmu is. And if you think about it in this context, here is Pharaoh who is panicked by the Vayatzmu of Israel, and he's got a plan. If you would take the plan in terms of wordplay, it's almost as if Pharaoh is saying, how will I do battle against this uh, tree in the water, as it were, against this mighty thing, this mighty powerful force? I will take out the tree, and what will I thrust into the endless waters instead? Children. Kol haben hayelud hayeora tashlichuhu. All children cast into the waters. And God then comes in the story of Mara and plays off of those words and say, the evil king Pharaoh, this little king, he comes along and says, cast children into the waters of the Nile. I too am a king, and I too can issue commands, but my commands are different. 
We talked about and God showed Moses this tree and had him cast it in the water, plays off of Hayaora Tashlihuhu of Pharaoh. And now we begin to see another layer in that wordplay. It's as if God is writing the situation. God is saying, let's bring it back to the way it was. I'm the king who believes in Vayatzmu. I am the king who fosters Vayatzmu. I am the king who wants you to become mighty. Pharaoh is the king who wants to destroy your, your might, wants to drown children as a way of attacking Vayatzmu. I am the king who believes in the tree and the water. So when I saw this, it was suggestive. It sounds like, oh, well, Foreman, I, I never thought he was the kind of guy who was into gematria so much, and he's got these word plays. And this. <laughs> I mean, it, it all sounds like this tower of speculation. But what made me think twice about this and think that you know, there really is something going on here is actually something that Ami, the, the scholar here at Alabeda who is working on Rafainu, showed me, and I, I kid you not, he showed me this text. It hit me between the eyes. It was like, holy mackerel, what in the world is going on here? And that text coming out of nowhere is Jeremiah 17. And Emo, I want to take you into Jeremiah 17 because it just knocked my socks off. What Ami showed me is something which was really pretty remarkable, which is that the sages actually are not just anchoring their words in biblical language. They're also anchoring it in language from the prophets, later biblical books as well. They're drawing upon both of these sources. And what Ami showed me in 1714 is confirmation of exactly that idea. Read 1714. It's just right out of Shemona Esrei. This is clearly where they're coming from. Now, heal me, God, and let me be healed. Save me and let me be saved because you are my rapture. So clearly... This is the prayer pretty much word for word. It's just the prayer word for word. Now, that doesn't mean we're wrong, right? Goel Yisrael clearly goes back to the Exodus. The beginning of Goel Yisrael, Re'ina Va'anyenu, clearly goes back to the Exodus. Rifainu, I think, also clearly goes back to Mara. But there's other layers here, right? There's a layer in prophets, and then there's a language a layer in Torah. That's true for Rifainu, and I think it's true for all of the blessings in Shemona Esrei. Ami and I are working on a podcast now in Shemona Esrei, where hopefully we'll show that throughout the entire Shemona Esrei. There are biblical layers, and then there's prophetic layers, and then the rabbis are drawing on both of those. But here's the thing. If that's true, Imu, right, you might think like, okay, so let's draw a little triangle here. Up there is the rabbis. And then down here is the Torah and the prophets. The sages are drawing on the Torah. They're drawing the story of Mara. So let's connect that little dot at the top, which is the sages. Let's draw a line that goes all the way down to the Torah in, in, in Mara, to finish my triangle, I'm going to take another line from that top dot to sages, and I'm going to draw it all the way down to Jeremiah 17. But Emu, I've only got two lines. I need three lines for a triangle. What line am I missing? you got to understand how uh, Jeremiah relates to the story of Mara. Exactly. I'd argue if you can't do that, then you know we may have totally missed the mark 
in saying the sages had anything to do with Mara. Yep. It seems that there's just a, a much stronger proof to say it comes right out of here from Jeremiah. Exactly. So the pressure is on, Rabbi Foreman. The, the pressure is on. Can we draw that line? Did the sages understand that Jeremiah 17 was relating back to Mara? So let's go back, um, he says, to the beginning of Jeremiah 17. And let's actually read through the text coming up to 14. So our goal is to get to Rapaini Hashem Ve'erafei, but just like we did with Mara, we got to look at the backstory here too in Jeremiah 17. We've got to look at the backstory of verse 14. What is the backstory of Rifaini in Jeremiah 17? Ready, Emu? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Emu, let's start from Jeremiah 17. Let's start from verse 5. God says, Cursed is someone who trusts in people, who makes mere flesh his strength, and turns his thoughts away from God. What is such a person like? Jeremiah continues, Vayakara or Barava. He's like this kind of wilty kind of bush in the desert. Lo Yirekiavotov. He never even going to be around to sense the coming of good times. Vishachan Khairim Bamibar stuck in these scorched places in the desert, Eretz Malecha, the salty earth, below Taishev, it's in a barren land, no one can even live there, and this is this isolated bush that's just going to wilt and die. That's somebody who trusts in man. But, on the other hand, Baruch HaGever, Asher Yitach Hashem, blessed be the man who trusts in God, God for him is his basic bulwark, his basic source of trust. What is that person like? Look at verse 8, and it just hits you between the eyes. Emu, read us verse 8. Oh, wow. It'll be like a tree that's planted on water. This tree seems like it takes root by the river. And it won't see when, when the heat comes. Its uh, foliage will be splendorous. Yeah, verdant. It's going to have these leaves that, that are, are green. No matter how hot it is outside, its leaves are going to be green and wonderful because it's not going to become parched. It's got its access to water built in. And when a drought comes, it has nothing to worry about, presumably because its roots are, are in the water. peri. And it will, it never stops providing fruit. So Imu, isn't that just like, here you have this this line that the sages are drawing to Jeremiah 17. And what's Jeremiah 17 talking about except for a tree in the water, which is Mm -hmm. the whole thing of Mara. It really is true. Jeremiah Mm -hmm. 17 is talking about Mara. It's talking about the tree in the water. Okay, Reformen, you you laid the groundwork for me. Can I try and attempt to tell you what this means to me? Sure. I mean, it, it feels like you've got this tree in the water thing, which is coming right out of Mara together with Rafainu. Put the pieces together for us. What do you see here? So, first of all, just what you said is, is true, right? Obviously, Jeremiah 17 is pointing us back to Mara, right? The Rafainu Hashem Ve'erafe, Hoshina Ve'ivashaya. The only time in Chumash you have a Bayosha Hashem is right next to a Ani Hashem Rofecha. So, seems seems very much like Jeremiah is commenting on, on Mara, which is amazing because... We, we really need to understand what's going on in that story. And verse 8 jumps out at me. So 
right? Um, you know, you will be as a, a tree that is, is planted on water. So I'm picturing sort of like this missing piece here in the Mara story. I'm picturing the eights being thrown into the water. Um, but what's happening to that tree that's being brought into the water? In what sense is it curative? In what sense is it some sort of healing? Well, Jeremiah is telling us the eights is Shatul al It's like it's planted in the water. It's not like running down the river. It's being planted. So the only way I see you hearing it, is, hearing it is that at some level there's this dichotomy, right, between Jeremiah 17 and Mara, which is that even though the imagery of the, the tree in the water is so stark that it's so obvious that's going back to Mara together with the Rifa'enu, and yet there's a slight difference between the two trees, right? Because the tree in Jeremiah 17 is this tree that's that's planted on this island in the middle of this oasis, and it's got its root system all going into the river, and it has nothing to worry about. But if you look at the tree in the water at Mara, it was a very different tree, right? Moses mm-hmm. took this tree and literally yanked it out of the ground. This tree has just gone through trauma. <laughs> it's like the trees again. I had a very good life oh, with all my roots in the ground. All of a sudden, I take them out and have been hurled into the water. The poor tree is floating down the water. And so it's two entirely different visions. And maybe the answer is that Jeremiah is talking to us about that and, and talking about the meaning of faith and the meaning of hope. Who would need hope more than that little tree? Who is that tree? That tree was us. Right. And that, that's the verse right before that, Baruch HaGever Sheivtach Bashem, right? Blessed are those who, who trusted in God. They will be as a tree that was Shatu Almayim, a, a tree that was purposely planted on water. And I don't I don't read it necessarily the same way you do. You, you add in an island on an oasis, right? The, the text here says they're planted on water, right? It's it, Which you don't plant a tree on water. You plant a tree in the ground. But this tree is planted on water, sort of like the tree that, that Even Moses, if you're hiking in New Hampshire, you know, you'll sometimes see there's this tree just coming out of the river, Right. How did that right, tree get there? Right. You got to think that, well, one day there was this tree and it was on the side of the river and there was this big storm and it got washed away. Poor little tree. And what God seems to be saying is, guess what? I have news for you. You can take a tree and you can rip it out of the ground and you can throw it in the water. But that isn't necessarily the end of the tree. A tree has the mm-hmm. ability in the water to have its roots catch on some stone and to grab hold of that. And then fast forward five years later, what is that tree? But it's no longer this little bush, but it's this proud tree coming up and it's better off for being in the water. And it has its mm-hmm. its, its root system and it's fine and it's doing and it, it has nothing to worry about. It doesn't have to worry about the summer. Those are the very next words, that it will catch root, right? You plant the tree in the water. Oh, no, that's terrible. Water, water is a destructive force. But no, it's going to, it will grab root. It will, it will stand. And then and here, here's the amazing metaphor is that water was this destructive force and it went through trauma. But now, no, now the water is going to be the source of its strength. There's actually a, a nice double entendre, right? Uh, he will not see heat. But also Yudresh Aleph is he will not fear the coming of heat. But that word chom also you can read as cham. Here, little Israel, this tree, need not worry about the coming of cham. Cham is one of the, the sons of Noah and the, the father of Mitzrayim. He did not fear Cham's yeah, progeny. Really he did not chilling, fear Mitzrayim. That the tree 
need not fear harm. And if you think about the tree as Israel, right, and as God as the waters that nurture it, so it comes back to this idea of Baruch HaGav. You can understand why blessed is the one who hopes. So there, was, there is hope for a tree that gets cast in the water. And of course, cast in the water over here, we sort of understand why it is that the tree of Mara was this uprooted tree that was thrown in the waters. And it goes back to that play on words that we talked about in our last session. By Yoreyu Hashem Eitz, right? When God shows most of this, this tree, Vayashli Cheyu Alamayim, and he throws it in the water, evokes Kol HaBen HaYilud what Pharaoh did to mm -hmm. our children. He uprooted children from the bosoms of their mothers mm -hmm. and hurled them mm -hmm. into the water. And God says, mm -hmm. you know what? That's not the end of you. I'm going to make sure that you thrive. And if Israel is the tree, I'm the larger king here, and I can see to it that one way or the other, this tree, so to speak, lands on its feet. Israel will not be destroyed by your terrible designs, no matter what it is that you choose to do. It's exactly what we've been saying over and over again, is that the, the suffering is transmuted into flourishing. Just If we just finish the verse, right? his foliage will grow and maybe even... In Ra'anan is Anan, the cloud, maybe a cloud of glory. Uvishnat batsoret lo yidag, right? And during the uh, the times of cold and, and suffering, he will not be worried because he now, that water source which threatened to kill him, is now nourishing him. He's got plenty of water. peri. And here's the real clincher. He will not stop from producing fruit, right? What was the whole reason why Pharaoh threw us in the Nile? Pru by your fruit, by your boo, right? He wanted to cut off the fruits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now, what's the ironic thing? By throwing us in the water, we will catch root and we will never stop producing fruit. It's so beautiful how it unpacks the metaphor of throwing the tree into the water and how you were thrown in the, in the water to cut off your fruits. Well, you know what, Israel? You are a tree. You can withstand this, right? Vayatzmu was the source of your threat and you are an eights. You are a tree and you will flourish. Right? You can't drown a tree. It might be painful. It might be traumatized. But you can't drown the tree. Look how Jeremiah takes it just three verses later in verse 13. Mikveh Yisrael Hashem. Suddenly we discover what's the water. What's the water and what's the tree? Well, we know what the tree is. The tree is someone who has faith in, in the Almighty. That's the tree. Well, what's the water? The mikveh of Israel is God. Now, mikveh is a funny word, right? Because mikveh means two things. It can mean a reservoir of water. A reservoir of water is God. God is the water. And of course, mikveh also has another meaning. Mikveh doesn't just mean a reservoir of water. It means the hope of Israel, right? When you trust in someone, to trust is to have hope. Even in hopeless situations, to have trust is to say, no, I can go on because I can cling to hope. God is the hope of Israel, as well as the water of Israel. Kol ozvecha yevoshu, another double entendre. Anyone who leaves God, yevoshu could either mean, right, becomes ashamed, but it could also mean to become dry, just dries out from the words yavash, right? Because they have left this source of eternal running water, they have left God behind. So God is the waters, right? And that itself is this sense of hope, the double entendre of mikveh. Mikveh is both source of water and hope. If the waters are not just the cold, hard waters of chance, waters that just happen to be there, but they're God's waters, then somehow, 
there's hope for the tree. Can the tree have faith, right? That there will be a kind of light to the end of the tunnel, that there's these larger waters that are God's waters, not just Pharaoh's evil waters. And Emu, the metaphor that comes to mind here for me is, is that of Russian dolls. I remember my mom used to have this Russian doll. You open the, you unscrew the thing, and then there's another doll inside. There's another doll inside. There's another doll inside. And it makes me feel like the analogy, so to speak, between God and Pharaoh, the king of kings, and the local king Pharaoh, is kind of like this, this Russian doll sort of analogy. And to me, I wonder if that is kind of explains the faith here that Jeremiah is talking about. Let's take the notion of faith and, and take it back into the story. Right? If anybody had faith in the story of Mara slash the Exodus from Egypt, right? who do you say the great paragon of faith in the story? Interestingly, Jeremiah talks about Baruch HaGever Asher Bashem, blessed be the man who has faith in God. And yet, ironically, the great paragon of faith is not a man at all. The Baruch HaGever Asher Bashem is really Miriam, right? Miriam is the great paragon of faith. You Maybe see, that's why uh, Jeremiah puts it that way, right? Like the women don't need the help here. Yeah. They're the ones who had faith. Yeah. It's the men who needed it. Yeah, it's the men who needed it. And, you know, we talked before about how uh, the story of the Nile is a kind of microcosm of the story of the sea. And one of the aspects of that microcosm is Miriam's faith playing out on the largest stage of the world, right? It's not a coincidence that what Moshe tells the people to do is to just be still when they see the Egyptians coming. And the language for the faith that he asks them to have in God is stand and watch the salvation that God will perform. And of course, there was someone before who stood and watched at a great body of water. That was his sister Miriam. She stood and watched from afar. And I was kind of thinking about this, and I was kind of saying, like, even, you know, if you put yourself in Miriam's shoes, at that moment that she stood and watched, what gave her the strength to do that, right? What's going through her head? I think you can sort of think about Jeremiah 17, this notion of mikveh Yisrael Hashem, that if you think about Jeremiah 17 as being a commentary the kind of faith of Miriam, the kind of faith that began to lead to this healing, the song of the sea, and then God almost picks up where Miriam left off with the stick in the water. It kind of all came together for me. And here's why. Let's kind of inhabit Miriam at that moment. You have this prophecy, your mother's going to give birth to the savior of the Israelites, and yet it's all going awry. The stormtroopers are outside the doors, your mother is crying, your mother, in an act of desperation, puts together this little coffin for the baby, puts the baby in the coffin. And of course, at that moment, could anyone bear to watch? And no one really watches, except for Miriam. Miriam somehow has the strength to watch. And now if I interviewed you, right, and I said, Miriam, why are you watching? What in the world do you think you are going to accomplish? by watching, what would Miriam say? Yeah, the way you're putting it kind of hits me over the head, right? Sort of like, there are only two people who would watch something horrible like that. One is a sadist, someone who enjoys watching pain. And the other is someone who has hope. This is yeah, Mikveh Israel, someone, someone who has hope that some that the horrible thing won't happen. 
Yeah. And she doesn't know where that hope comes from or how it's going to happen, but that's not her job to know how it's going to happen, right? If mikveh Yisrael Hashem, if mikveh also means waters, isn't it strange that what scares Miriam is waters? Miriam is the girl who is named by her mother, perhaps Maryam, for the bitter waters. And as she looks over those waters and stands and watches, that's when her name is staring at her in her face. There's this huge Nile and it looks endless and it looks like there's no hope. And in a world like that, there's no hope. If it's really true that the bitter waters are a yam, if it's really true that the only thing there is is this Nile, and the only king there is is this Pharaoh, mm. so how could I ever have any hope? I couldn't. I would give in to the same Jewish, to the same sense of devastation that everyone else in the story has. But she didn't say that. She stood and watched because in her mind there was a larger picture. So there was a king, yes, who hurled children in waters, and those waters were very bitter. But at the end of the day, she confronts her name, Maryam, and says, no, it's not true. My waters aren't bitter, right? There's a, there's a larger body of water than this. It's the king's waters, the king of kings. And the king of kings also hurls things in the water. The king of kings looks at what's happening. What's happening is that we aren't babies being hurled in water. There's a tree being hurled in water, and it's awful for the tree, but the tree can take root, and she's seeing a larger picture. She's saying Pharaoh is just a local power, and that this too will pass. There's a larger waters here, and it's almost like she's saying, can I root myself in those waters? Can I leave this little jurisdiction of this little King Pharaoh and say that, no, I'm part of these larger waters. Can I feel nourished by those waters? Can I feel that hope of Mikveh Yisrael Hashem? And that's what gives her hope. And it doesn't necessarily mean that in the small picture, things will work out. But what she's saying is that in the larger picture, it will. And even if for me, it doesn't, to stand and die and to stand and be destroyed, but to be in the jurisdiction of the larger king, the benevolent king, and to say that the greatest force in the universe is not this local king, but there's something larger, is to say that the world is ultimately, in its largest sense, a good place. It's not a place of chance and horror. And, it, you know, it comes back, even though there was this book I read a long time ago, you know, famous self-help book, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he basically says, you know, everybody's got your circle of concern and your circle of control. And he says that there are things in life that we can control, but we're always concerned about more than we can control. So our circle of concern is always much greater than our circle of control. And what he counsels people to do is don't give in to the temptation to try to control what you can't control that lies outside of your circle of control, but in your circle of concern. Instead, focus on the small little circle of control, what you can actually control. And amazingly, sometimes by doing so, you can strengthen that circle and can slowly begin to grow. And if you think about Miriam at that moment, Miriam was living this nightmare of having a very small circle of control when her circle of concern completely eludes her. What's her circle of concern? Here's her brother. He'll probably drown in this Nile, right? And now the question is, well, I'm terribly concerned about that. But what can I do? And her answer to that is, what I can actually do is so much smaller than this. I can stand and watch. I will be there for my brother. I cannot save him, but I can accompany him. And I will not be intimidated. Mm. I can be there with him. 
and she defeats the bitter waters. I have the strength to relinquish the circle of concern and to say there's a larger body of waters. That's up to God. I focus on what I can control, and I stand, and I watch. And isn't it interesting what happens as she stands and watches? Along comes the daughter of Pharaoh. And you would think if there's any time to turn away, this would be the moment. But she still stands and watches, even as Hitler's daughter approaches. And then the amazing thing happens, which is the interaction of the two women that create the salvation. The daughter of Pharaoh on the one hand, and Miriam on the other. Miriam's great strength is her faith. The daughter of Pharaoh also has a great strength. It's something else. It's strange. Divrayami identifies her as Bitya, which literally means like Batya, the daughter of God, as if God says, I'm taking her. She's my daughter, and she is, because it is God's values that she follows rather than her father's. Her father makes a national security argument that all of the children are vermin and they need to be thrown into the Nile. But one wonders if at the moment her father decrees that, her daughter is horrified. And here's this moment that she actually sees this baby, this Israelite baby, and she hears the baby and she hears his cries and she sees his pain. Much like God says, I've seen the cries, I've heard the pain. And she allows herself to be moved by that. You think about the great thing that we're supposed to learn from the Egypt experience, the very first person we learned it from was actually the daughter of Pharaoh. Love the stranger, love the other. She reached out to the alien, to the one who was different, the horrible evil snake that needed to be cast into the Nile. She said, no, this is a human being. This is a child. And she stretches out her hand and sends her maidservant and fetches the child. She takes action, action that expresses great divine values. And together, the faith of Miriam and the acts of loving the stranger of the daughter of Pharaoh become two ways in a way that these two women take themselves out of the jurisdiction of a small evil king, the father of one of them, the nemesis of the other, and put them into the jurisdiction of a larger king and a larger king's waters. And the daughter of Pharaoh says, I have another father, the king of kings, and I choose to plant myself in his waters. And it's almost like as you, as you leave the story of Mara, together with Jeremiah's commentary. It's almost like there's two ways of planting yourself in God's waters, two ways of becoming that tree. And one of them is through faith, as Miriam does. And Miriam says, I can only do what I can do, right? She doesn't have the option of the daughter of Pharaoh. She can't directly save that child. But what she can do, she can be with him. She says, I can just do that. And then God says, you know what? If you say I'm in the jurisdiction of the king of kings, well, the king of kings has ways of making things happen. Here comes Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I'm going to destroy the Israelites. I'm going to throw them in water. You know, it's as if God says, really? Can you control everything? Do you really have the jurisdiction over the whole that you think you have? What if your own daughter has compassion? What if your decree of genocide revolts her and actually causes her to rebel? How can you stop her being the one who becomes the mother as it were, of the Savior of Israel, who nurtures that Savior of Israel and actually brings your whole empire down into a calamitous ruin. And it's this elegant thing. It's that God doesn't, he says, look, you have jurisdiction, Pharaoh. You've got your local jurisdiction. I'm not even going to meddle with your free will. You do your thing. You throw the babies in the Nile. You don't realize, though, that the babies are, are trees, 
right? That Israel as a whole is a tree, and one way or the other, I am committed to Vayatzmu. I am committed to their flourishing. You don't have as much jurisdiction as you think you do. To me, these are the great lessons of Mara, that at the end of the day, the faith of Israel comes back when God says, here's the real ocean. God's waters can destroy the enemy, but God's waters can also nurture. And those are the waters of Mara that are the bitter waters. On the one hand, the bitterness of all the tears of Israel that in a way are the same as God's waters. God says, it's all part of my water. I take all of those tears in. I've seen all of your pain. I'm, I'm with you. And yet the world can be good. Pharaoh is a local disturbance. At the end of the day, I'll have my say. It's extremely powerful. It's hard to unpack everything you just said because it's it's so moving. First of all, just you know, the, the mikveh Yisrael Hashem idea of the larger waters of God um, and even the rest of the verse, right? The end of the verse is, is makor mayim chayim et Hashem, right? To understand here are these waters that were destructive and to understand that all waters have a deeper source and that that deeper source is life-giving waters. Just again, going back to what you said about how Miriam could have stood by and, and watched. You have to know that these waters, these destructive local waters uh, have a deeper source. There's a larger source. And, and it makes so much sense now why she's the one who, who sings her own song and leads the women uh, in song because her prophecy came true. Her faith was born out. She is uh, the one who trusted in God uh, as Jeremiah is sort of praising the one, the ones who trust in God. Um, and this incredible miraculous thing happens and she gets it before everyone else does. Right. So, so you have the next piece with the, the tree and the water and the people not being able to drink the water. They, they sort of have to learn the lesson that Miriam does, and maybe they're given this other way, as you were saying, they're given this other way uh, of experiencing a refua, right? There's sort of the, the easy way where you may not even need it in the first place, which is have faith in God when you experience sickness, that actually it's not even sickness, that there's there's something uh, about this um, that will turn out okay. But for, for those who can't, there are deeds, there are actions, there's law. And that's what happens at Mara is we're given law kind of seemingly like you're saying in the same way that, that Batya was able to, uh, the daughter of, of Paro, the same way that she was able to uh, to take a horrible decree and turn it into uh, the seeds of empathy and eventually the seeds of, of redemption. We ourselves are given law and we're, we're commanded to transmute our horrible suffering, our trauma into Vehabdem et and to take care of others. So these ideas seem so incredibly deep and powerful and moving. So I had wondered, you know, having seen all of this, how would you understand Rifainu? Like, how would you see this prayer that Chazal have decided to found uh, our prayers in sickness, right? So we're talking about people who are sick, people who, who may have cancer or people who may have coronavirus. The prayer to say is Rifainu. And yet the story it's pulling on is is a story of faith, a story of trauma, a story of, of psychological trauma. Why do you think Chazal picked this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I wonder if, if every physical trauma, if every sickness, right, comes with its psychological trauma also, comes with this horror. I mean, you just read the news stories. Uh, thank God I haven't suffered illness with COVID-19 to this point, and I pray that I won't. But the stories that I've been reading is that one of the things that happens is it's not just the physical illness. There's a sense of, of real panic and, and fear 
that you kind of have to combat if you come down with this or if anybody you love comes down with it. And it's a real psychological horror and trial as well, from which we may need healing in its own right. Maybe at some level, that's some of the recognition here that Rafainu is just as much for the the mind games that terror and devastation play upon us as much as it is the physical healing. We need healing from that as well. And at some level, maybe one of the things we need to do is to root ourselves in the larger king's waters to understand that, mm-hmm. yes, there's pain and there's suffering, but we have two great ways that we can connect to the Makar Ma'im Chaim and be nourished by the, the great waters of life. And one of them is acts, and one of them is faith. Um, and, and faith can be a sense that, look, I am going to root myself in what I can do. Uh, you know, the great celebrity coronavirus narrator's way through it was Chris Cuomo, who on CNN kind of narrated his journey from the bottom of his basement through COVID-19. One of the things that struck me about it is, you know, he thought, yeah, I'm just going to lie around and wait for my body to deal with it and get better. And what can I really do? And, and you know, you have different approaches. You can kind of run for the miracle cures at some level to grab desperately and expand unnaturally that circle of control, circle of concern. But, you know, his doctor said, tell me about your breathing. And he says, my breathing is really hard. I can't do it. And he said, okay, here's what you need to do. You know, stand up, take these deep breaths, count, I'm giving you breathing exercises. And Chris is like, I can't do that. says, yes, you can do this. This is what you can do. And it's a slow expanding of your circle of, of control. But what gives you the mind space to do that? It's a, this little thing that I actually can do, which can be ever so slightly helpful, could be in an ever so slightly better position. And I think that's faith where you can say, look, there's a larger king here and there's a larger jurisdiction. And if you can gain some peace of mind from that, that in some kind of way, even though I can't see it, it's going to work out okay. And even if it doesn't work out okay for me, at some level, there's a larger picture. Mm-hmm. And in the larger sense, it will work out okay. It's like my father always used to say, my father struggled with cancer. And one of the things he used to tell me when he used to tell me these stories, and sometimes the stories were scary. I was a little kid and he would say to me, David, it's scary in the middle, but it always works out in the end. And if in the end it hasn't worked out, it means it's not the end yet. That is the story of faith. If at the end it hasn't worked out, it means it's not the end yet. The waters mm-hmm. that you see are not the whole waters. It's just a river. There's a larger waters and the larger things it's mm-hmm. going to work out. And if you can root yourself in that understanding, you can just take a deep breath and say, okay, what can I do? Let me just focus on that circle of control. And the rest is in God's hands. Mm-hmm. So much uh, was poignant for me while you were talking. I think one of the pieces here is that this prayer of Rafa'inu and these points here aren't about how to magically make yourself better. It's not like, oh, say this prayer three times um, and you'll heal whoever you say it about, right? It's it's actually kind of just a way of dealing with sickness. And one of the things that's here is, you know, there may be death, there may be pain, there may be loss. And there, there are ways to deal with that. And sort of faith for me in, in this story isn't uh, wishful thinking or hopeful thinking. 
you know, like, oh, you know, just have blind faith and it'll all turn out well. It's actually surrendered to a truth, which is there is a Makor Mayim Chaim. All waters flow and come from an ocean. Um, there is a larger source for everything. And if you know that, then what's left to you to do is to surrender and have a sort of faith that uh, the larger story is a good story, whether you survive in that story or whether you do not. Right, and, and, and I don't think it's just, right? I think there's, a, there's two sides to faith. One is a kind of surrender that the story is okay and an equanimity that allows me to live even if things aren't going to be good, I can somehow live with it. That's one side of faith. But the other side of faith, I think, is the actual hope for salvation, which increases right. through faith, right? Because that happened with Miriam right. too, right? Miraculously, right. by standing and watching, she ironically is in a position to do more than stand and watch. At the right. moment that she sees the indecision on the face of the daughter of Pharaoh, it's a Hebrew child. What should I do? I have compassion. She says, can I go and call somebody to nurse the child for you. And she actually becomes the vehicle for salvation by just doing what she can do. And that's the miracle of all of that. It wasn't even a miracle. It was a, God says, look, I have jurisdiction here. And if you place yourself in my jurisdiction and you appeal to me, then even in the moments of great darkness, even in the moments of genocide, there is always yeah. hope that it, it might not work out. But it can. What you're saying to me is sort of like a perfect one-to-one -one for the holy, right? It's a perfect antidote to the, to, the, to the kind of sickness because the way you describe the sickness is a sort of buckling under the hopelessness of it all, right? You talked about survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. It's not just that you went through this trauma and then and the baby boys are going to be killed, but it's, it's now you're left pretending and acting as if you have fewer options than you really do. Or you walk around and you and you say, I shouldn't have more kids and I can't go on with my life. Mm -hmm. That's because you're you're plagued with this sort of sickness of this general malaise, this general perception about the world that this world is a hopeless world and I have no options. There's no path forward for me. The cure for the illness is the deep part of what you're saying is that survivor's guilt is itself a confusion between circle of control and circle of concern. Mm -hmm. I'm so focused mm -hmm. on what concerns me that I give into this illusion that I had some control over it, and I feel guilty because it didn't work out the, uh, the right way, which mm -hmm. is the flip side of when it doesn't work out, right? It, it, that, that you can be plagued with survivor's guilt, and faith is an answer to that too. Faith says, no, that wasn't in my control. That was in control mm -hmm. of the king. In this case, that was in mm -hmm. control of the evil pharaoh. My mm -hmm. circle, someone else's circle. And the same faith mm -hmm. that can allow you to say that there's a larger God in the universe, and therefore I can move on, can also say you, and there is human evil in the universe, and I don't have to take responsibility mm -hmm. for that either, and I don't have to be mm -hmm. plagued by that. I do what I can do, and I will hold my head up high, mm -hmm even in the face mm -hmm. of pain and suffering, and I will not take responsibility for what an evil human being does. And I wonder if at its most essential level, at a level even deeper than that, if the basic way of understanding sickness is, is hopelessness. And in that sense, I very much relate to what's going on now during this COVID pandemic, is, is there's this general hopelessness. I don't even think we're conscious of it, but like living day to day can sometimes be just utterly depressing because of the hopelessness that's in the air. And there seems to be a type of bravery 
and a sort of healing in saying, I can have hope. I can have hope that things will get better. I can have hope that this is part of a, a larger story, a part of a larger and you know divine plan. Um, and, and again, I'm seeing how Rifa'enu, the prayer, isn't about magically healing anybody. It's sort of about cultivating hope uh, and cultivating an understanding that you know you can plant yourselves in larger waters. And just doing that, it just changes the way you behave, it changes the way you experience your days. And we can't. It's, it's so hard to go on under this cloud of, of hopelessness. Yeah, it's a kind of rafua in itself. Right, faith in a way is the first stage in Rafua, and I think that's what Miriam brings to the table. Miriam is the first one to heal the the women, and somehow her faith at the Nile gives her the ability to lead women in song at the sea and to be able to sort out what was in my control and what wasn't in my control, and what's the larger king outside of the evil king, and she's able to gently say to the women. There's people being hurled in the Nile, but this is God acting now, and this is the larger waters. This is the end of your nemesis, right? And that brings us into Mar in a place where we can have the strength to somehow take our bitterness and 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 that 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 kind of expresses itself in these waters that we're so afraid to drink, and to become whole, to be good, to live virtuously, and to find. A kind of healing. So I think, yes, faith in the small picture allows us to say there is hope. If I'm in the jurisdiction of a larger good king, I can always appeal to God for miracles, and miracles happen. And the other side of it is, and and even if not, I'm part of these waters, and it's the and the larger waters are good, and there's an end to the story that I haven't seen, and I can still make peace with an outcome that I cannot change that I would rather have been different because I still have faith that there could be a kind of goodness that I cannot see even in that outcome. And so faith works both ways, I think. And maybe Rafa'inu is that blessing for us. And faith is only one side of the coin, right? There's this other side of the coin Which is of, of the chukim, yeah. of action itself. That to me is, is chilling here in, in this story. So there's a way of achieving healing through action. And maybe this is, you know, your circle of control and... Right. Well, ironically, what is outside of Miriam's circle of control is inside the daughter of Pharaoh's circle of control. Everyone mm -hmm. has a different mm -hmm. circle of control. And it's precisely there that she can act in a way that Miriam can't. And I think one of the lessons is actually, what is your circle of control? Sometimes your hopeless friend has a smaller circle of control than you can, but you can be the one to actualize their salvation in a way that they can only have faith in. And you can be God's instrument in making something happen. And mm -hmm. if you keep God's laws, we have the chance to be instruments to bring healing to all sorts of people that we could never imagine. Mm -hmm. Your actions can change the worlds of others when that lies hopelessly outside of their circle of control. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is just me, uh, and I'm sorry if this is too dark, but these themes that we're talking about makes me feel like refua healing, is even possible after death. It's even possible after loss. Because, you know, this story is about Israelites who, who did lose many baby boys and they still needed to come back and to drink from water. And this is the story of, of how. This was a people that was outcast and was treated 
horribly for being gerim, and one of the pieces of refuah here is a transmutation, and to take your suffering and to turn it into something good, and to turn it into something that outlasts the suffering and transmutes it into into something curative. And what I think about now is, who are we? How are we dealing with this crisis? Are we mourning? Are we sharing silly memes on WhatsApp? and Or is there something we can be doing that transmutes this difficult time where we can start caring about those who are outcast, the people who uh, who are sick, alone? Can we drive over and safely uh, keep them company? Can we take meals to people who can't go out and get groceries? Can we stop thinking so much of ourselves and stocking our pantries again and again and again and start thinking of, of others? And stocking their pantries. And that's another way to bring healing to us. No matter what pain we've experienced, no matter what trauma we've experienced, I think one of the great lessons of this is that you can transmute that pain into a, a kind of giving to others. And when you do, it brings healing to you. Not only are you not plagued by guilt, right, but you can transform your bitterness into a force for good, and with that, you can become whole with a part of your experience that you otherwise would become alienated from, and that's part of the healing too. So, yeah, these meditations on Rafa'enu and Mara gives one a lot to think about. They are deep waters. Deep waters. It gives one a lot to hope for. Yes. So, Imu, thank you very much. I think from here, uh, the great this kind of concludes our first look at the great journey from Exodus to Sinai and the healing that comes through it and the way that we recover from Egypt. But it's not the end of that very same story. And that brings us to uh, Sphira to Omer, something which never in a million years would you think has anything to do with healing or anything to do with hope, but I, I think has everything to do with that. And uh, that's what we'll be getting to next time we talk. Thank you. Thank you again, Ray Foreman, for teaching this to me. It was really impactful. And I'm eager and excited to begin the next chapter of this journey. Okay, see you then. Hi, I'm Beth, one of the writers here at Aleph Beta. I hope the journey of Rafa'enu so far has inspired you and given you hope during these unusually difficult times. Normally, Aleph Beta's most advanced courses, like this one, are available exclusively to our premium users. But we made the first half of Rafa'enu available to everyone and shared it here as a podcast because its message is so important right now. As Emu and Rabbi Foreman mentioned, there's actually a second half to this course, which you can find on our site, alephbeta.org. In the coming pieces, we dig even more into the connections to Sefirat HaOmer this course touched upon. See, if Sefirat HaOmer is about the journey from Exodus until the giving of the Torah, then the story of Mara is only half that story. And the other half? The other half is the origin story for Sefirat HaOmer. It's a story of lack, scarcity where Amazon delivery slots are unavailable and there is no toilet paper. It's a story where the future is uncertain and the people are taught to have faith. Join us in this next series as we continue to unpack the Torah's messages on healing from trauma and glean new insight into how to handle the uncertainty we are all dealing with during this pandemic. If that sounds interesting, you can find it all at alephbeta.org.